Well, if you turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 16 this morning. Genesis 16, 7 through 16. Yesterday we had the funeral service, as many of you know, for Bob Parker. That's why the flowers are out there that Pastor Appleton mentioned. Uh, and you are, as he said, free to take those. The family would like anyone that would like to take those to do so. Last time we were in Genesis, since I've been gone for a bit, we saw Abram and Sarai trying to help God keep his promises. Think of it. They had the word of God and they, in a sense, believed it. That's why they did what they did. They just thought that it needed their help, that it wouldn't come to pass unless they did their part. Can you imagine God's promised salvation? That's what their child was for the world. That it needed some participation. You know, we can do that. That God's salvation needs some participation from us. Some effort, some obedience, some cooperation, some of our good works in order for it to come to pass. God needs our help to save us and others. You see, their intentions really were good. They believed God. They just had an incredibly elevated view of their own efforts And an unbelievably low view of the holiness of God and of their own sinfulness. That they could help God keep his word of promise. What pride and foolishness. And of course the result of their ill-conceived plan was division, jealousy, contempt, distrust, self-righteousness, accusation, anger, fear, and despair. And of course, sin. Abram committed adultery by taking a second wife who isn't really his wife. And that wife, quote unquote, has now taken her unborn son and she's run off. And it would be over at that point. Except God steps in. Just like in chapter 12, verse 7, when Abram's wife was in Pharaoh's harem, when Abram's getting manservants and maidservants and camels and cattle and all this wealth from Pharaoh, and it looked like it was over, we read, but the Lord. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh's house. God wasn't going to let it end that way. And in our text, it's the same thing. We see God coming in And he begins to heal and restore and to correct what Abram and Sarai have completely perverted and corrupted. In this text, we see the benevolent kindness of God to unworthy sinners, a a text we really need to see this morning. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, how we pray that you would help us to see how kind, how gracious, how generous you are, and we would see also how sinful and unworthy we are that we would rejoice, that we would take heart, that we would always know that when we cry out to you, you will hear us and you will save us. Help us to believe that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis 16, beginning in verse 7. This is God's holy and perfect word. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. 
The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand shall be against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. May the Lord establish his word in our hearts this morning, I pray. I want you to notice, first of all, that all people are servants of God. All people are servants of God. We read about Hagar here at the beginning of our verse. That's who the angel finds in verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her. It's Hagar. Sarai's maid from the last section. Hagar is mentioned 14 times in the Old Testament. Um, 14 times in the Bible. Twice in the New Testament. Remember, she is a maidservant. They would have picked her up. In chapter 12, when they were in Egypt, where they received manservants and maidservants, and Hagar is probably going back to Egypt. That's why the angel of the Lord finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. Shur was the last point after Hebron, between Hebron and Egypt. So Hagar is going home. She's done. She is leaving. She's run off, and she has probably gone a long ways unless Abram at this time was in the very southern part of Canaan and probably was not. And so it's probably been a number of days, maybe even a week or more, before the angel now at last appears to her and she's at the wilderness. She's at a spring in the wilderness. And that desert she's about to try to cross is 150 miles. She would almost certainly have died. But she is in stubborn pride. She is hurt. She is upset. She thinks she deserves better. And she's about to try a a journey again that would certainly have killed her. Notice in verse 8, the angel knows her name, Hagar. He knows her occupation, Sarai's maid. He knows her employer, Sarai. He knows everything about her. He's an angel of the Lord. And it's the very first time in Scripture that we get the appearance of an angel. Not until this passage do we read that there even are angels in Genesis. And it's said to be an angel, the angel of the Lord. That phrase occurs 58 times in the Old Testament. A couple of times we know it refers to human beings. By the way, angel malak in Hebrew just means messenger. That's all it means. It doesn't necessarily mean an angelic being, but it usually does. And a couple of places in the Old Testament, we know it refers, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, refers to a man. 
Haggai 1.13. Haggai is the angel of the Lord. It's usually translated in English, the Lord's messenger. Exact same phrase in the Hebrew. In Malachi 2.7, the priest is the angel of the Lord. The messenger, usually, of the Lord. Same phrase. But most often it refers to a heavenly being. And of course, there is a question of whether or not it's more than a heavenly being. Because even in our text, Hagar doesn't claim to see an angel. She claims to have seen God. Now, does she mean that the angel was God in some way? Does she mean that the angel is to be identified with God, like to see a messenger of someone is to see that person or something? We're not going to get into that this morning. Uh, Many of you know the issue of the angel of the Lord. Is it the pre-incarnate Christ and so forth? Many times people even worship before this angel, which would be sinful if it was not in some way a theophany. But what's more important to us at this point is what the angel says. He asks Hagar where she's going and where she's come from. Now, he already knows that, of course. But this is the way God comes to us, especially when we're in the midst of sin and rebellion. He comes to us lowly and gently, right? Asking us, giving us an opportunity to humble ourselves and to confess our sin. And that's exactly what he's given Hagar the opportunity to do, to admit what she's done. By the way, it's interesting that he calls her Sarai's maidservant. He doesn't call her Abram's wife. I don't care what the world calls it. Anything beyond one man and one woman is not a marriage. And Hagar is not Abram's wife. They can call her Abram's wife. The world can call her Abram's wife. But beyond one man and one woman is not a marriage. No matter how many kings say it different. No matter how many presidents. No matter how many congresses. No matter how many priests. No matter how many ministers. There is no such thing as a marriage. Beyond one man and one woman. God help us if we don't return to that. But the angel calls her Sarai's maidservant. That's what she was. That's what she remains. But he gives her a chance to confess her sin. That's because all people belong to God. All people are are accountable to him. You know, up until now, uh, we have seen that there are um, God's, we've been following God's line, right? God's promise of the seed of the woman. And we're getting big, important people like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Noah's sons, you know, patriarchs of the different races and lines, generations, ethnicities of the world, all going back to these very big, important people. And now we're talking about a, a maidservant, a slave girl from Egypt. And the Bible is interested in talking to us about her. She belongs to God. She has a duty to him. The fall hasn't changed any of that. She too is made in the image of God. Anybody who denies God, any false religion, people living in sexual sin, whatever it is, they're still created in the image of God. They still are responsible to him. God could send an angel and call them to obey him because he owns them all. Everyone, that's what I mean by everyone is a servant of God. Everyone has been made to glorify God, to obey him. We are made in his image. And we're accountable to him. So God appeals to this maidservant. No doubt she was part of the visible church because Abram would lead his house in the worship of the Lord. And Sarai and her maidservants and Abram and his servants would all have been part of that corporate worship. If you were a servant of Abram and refused to worship Jehovah, you would have been cast off. 
And so whether or not inwardly she is a believer at this point, we know that she would have been part of the visible church. She would have known about Abram's God. And of course, she went along with Abram and Sarai's sinful corruption of marriage. And she was willingly part of it. We know that. Because she delighted in the fact that she got pregnant and she despised Sarai and she wanted to supplant her, as it were. She looked down on her mistress, on the true wife of Abram. She was the one to bear him a child and she now thought she was better than Sarai. So this woman is guilty of incredible insubordination, incredible ingratitude, incredible rebellion. I know today everybody's going to cease. You know, Hagar is the, is the poor victim, but she isn't that. She is walking in her haughtiness here, and she was very much uh, enjoying her status over Sarai. And Sarai had to run to Abram, and we saw all that last time. And so Hagar runs off now. She's upset. She will not go back to being a servant, though that's what she was. That was her occupation. That's how she made her living. Again, we don't need to sit and lord it over their system of, of life. Because that's the way everyone lived at that time. You were either in someone's house as a servant and you had a good living that way if you had a good master or you were yourself a master. There was no other way to live. And it's pointless for us to think and it's very arrogant for us to think that we have it better and we know better in our day. I think our system has at least as many problems. But all I want to say is that Hagar is at fault here. You ought not to see her as a victim. She has run off. Her maidservant, her boss is Sarai, and she entered a contract. She is bearing a son willingly as a surrogate for Abram and Sarai, and she has taken their child. She agreed to this. There is nothing in the scripture that says she was unwilling. If anything, it says she was willing because of the status that she got afterwards, and she enjoyed it. So she has now broken her contract. She has taken this child that doesn't belong to her by her own admission, She had agreed to give him up for adoption. We could say it that way. She signed the contract and everything else. And now she's run off because she's not being treated the way she thinks she ought to be treated. And sometimes, beloved, I want to just say this. Sometimes we too need to be in that place where we're in the wilderness before finally God gets our attention. And that's where Hagar is. And now God sends his angel Matthew Henry says, quote, God suffers those that are out of the way to wander for a while so that when they see their folly and what a loss they have brought to themselves, that they may be better disposed to return. Think of the prodigal son. He also thought he knew better. He also wanted to be treated better. And he ran off and squandered all of his wealth to the point where he was living in among pigs, unclean animals, horrible for a Jew to even think of. And he was longing to eat some of their slop because he didn't even have money to buy food. And it was only then, the Bible says, that he came to himself and he returned to his father's house and said, I don't want to be a son. I want to be a slave in your house, dad. That's all I deserve. I don't even deserve that. But I'd rather be a slave in your house. And also the Apostle Paul who achieved status and he had authority from the priests and the Pharisees to go and stop this upstart corruption of true Judaism. And it wasn't until God struck him blind and literally the scales had to fall from his eyes before he saw what he was doing. And that's where Hagar is. She has run off in stubborn pride and she's about to do something that's probably going to get her killed and God stops her in her tracks. I want you to think about that this morning.
Maybe you're in some particular mess that sin has brought to your life. Is God trying to get your attention? Have you reached that wilderness yet? Are you in that place yet where finally you're ready to humble yourself and consider the real state of the situation? It seems to me so oftentimes, sinfully, pridefully, we are our own worst enemy and stumbling block. And that's what has happened to Sarai. If she wouldn't have been puffed up in pride, none of this would have happened. Everything would still be tranquil in the house, it would have seemed. But she is the one who wanted a higher place than she had. And she also has run off, as we said, and God now has stopped her. But this rebellious, runaway slave girl is also a servant of God. No more, no less. And so God has found her by his grace. Secondly, I want you to notice all people are in the plan of God. All people are in the plan of God. As I said, we've been following the big important people, right? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, his sons. And then we got Abram and Lot and their issue together. And then uh, Abram and Pharaoh and their issue. And Abram and Sarai and Pharaoh. And now it's Hagar, the slave girl. Who is she? Is she a believer? She would have been so again visibly, but she's upset. She wasn't happy with her place. She was under authority and she said no. And she has now broken her word. And so the angel calls her after she tells the angel, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. And that was true. Unjustly and wrongly, the angel of the Lord said to her, notice how simple, return to your mistress. Submit yourself under her hand. Return to your mistress. Submit yourself under. What's he calling her to do? Go back to the proper authority that I and my providence have placed over you and submit. Go back and put yourself under the proper authority that I have arranged and put in your life. Though it's imperfect as all authority systems in this world are, yet God calls her to submit. In other words, return to your duty. Isn't that what God delights in us to do as well, that we would do our duty. I have so many people, oftentimes I get this question, probably the most I get, not in these exact words, but it is the question that they're asking for. How can I know God's will? How can I know that I can do God's will in my life? And what people always mean when they have that question are big important things like, what spouse should I marry? What person should I seek for a spouse? What major should I go for in school? What career should I pursue? What college should I go to? What house should I build? What city should I live in? And all of that stuff really doesn't matter. When it comes to God's will, God's will for you is that you would do your duty, that you would submit to the authorities that he has placed in your life, in the state, in the church, in the home, that you would do your duty that you would relate to the people around you according to his providential ordering, that you would submit to his word and obey it. That is so much more important than where you live, than what you do, than who you marry, because I tell you this, you can live in just about any city and do that and do God's will. You can have just about any job and walk in the will of God and you can marry millions of Christians of the opposite sex and do the will of God. But what we really want to do, rather than the will of God, though we say it that way, is we want to make the best choice that's going to be the best for us. 
I want to be in the house that's going to make me the happiest. I want to be the spouse that's going to make me the most fulfilled. I want to have the job that's going to make the most money. And that's what we want. When God's will is that you would obey him. That you would serve him. That you would keep his word. That you would go to church. That you would read your Bible. That you would pray. That's God's will. That's what he wants for you. In many places in the world, they're in times of war. And the question of things like, you know, luxuries, like, oh, can I go and have this job or that job? Can I just find enough food for today before, you know, the the shelling starts again? God's will is that we would obey him, that we would do our duty. That's what the angel calls Hagar to. Trust me. We can't control so many things in our lives. You know what we can control? What we do that we are seeking God in his word, that we are seeking God in prayer, that we're part of a good church, that we are loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's what God wants. That's how you rest in his will. That's how you please him. That's how you find joy and delight. But you know, God doesn't stop there. Immediately, the angel of the Lord, after saying this in verse 9, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Calvin says it this way, quote, God might have indeed by his own authority strictly enjoined what was right, but in order that Hagar might more cheerfully do what she knew to be her duty, he allures her as by blandishments to obedience. Doesn't God do that to us? Doesn't he promise us all sorts of rewards, all sorts of blessings if we just obey him, if we just humble ourselves and obey him? He promises us joy in the midst of sorrow. He promises us peace in the midst of chaos. So many people don't have that because they're not walking in the simple acts of obedience that you can actually do right now every day. Not to trust in that, God isn't giving a command here so that she earns the promise. He's giving a promise so that she'll be motivated to obey his command. That's what the promise is for, as Calvin says. God doesn't have to do that. He could just say, do what I say. But he says, do what I say, and it's going to be so good for you. If you would just turn away from that sin, if you would just trust in me, if you would just seek me, I've given you so many little things to do. Jesus says, my yoke is is light. My burden is easy. Just follow me by faith. You're going to sin. You're going to sin in everything. Confess that too. Bring that to me too and I'll give you peace. That's what he's telling Hagar. Just simply walk in my obedience and look at all these things I'm promising you. Again, God is not commanding her to earn the promise. He's promising her so that she will more sincerely and with more desire want to obey. Because God's even promised her this great blessing, multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they will not be counted for multitude. You know Hagar is the only woman in the Bible to get that promise. There's no other woman that gets that promise from God. Multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they will not be counted. You want to talk about mercy and condescension and alluring someone to obedience with blandishments, as Calvin says... (laughs) That's what God does. And he does that to us, beloved. I think even more this side of the cross. 
It's precisely those who humble themselves who go back to doing what God has called them to do that God honors the most and blesses the most. Hagar is in the plan of God. Slave girls are in the plan of God. Everyone is in the plan of God. And you, this side of death, have an opportunity to come to him, to live for him. The gospel call goes out as long as you're breathing, that you would know his joy, that you would not be in rebellion against the God-ordained authorities, just walk in the things God has had, leave it to him. If there's injustice, you can pursue it through legal grounds, and if you can't do that, trust him, he will make it right someday. And so thirdly, I want you to notice all people receive the grace of God. All people receive the grace of God. So here's Hagar, a servant of God. Here's Hagar in the plan of God. And now we see God promising Hagar. Now, yes, it is common grace, a son, multitude of descendants, won't be counted. Uh, Everyone, all the commentators trace the Arabic peoples to Ishmael. There would be no people, uh, what we call the Arabs, uh, and all the different countries that they have in the Middle East and, and in Asia and in Africa, except that God gave this promise to Hagar. He makes an innumerable people from her. And he appears to her, think of it, with his angel. It's, I, I'm convinced, and I think Calvin and Matthew, everybody that I read, seem to be convinced that Hagar really is a believer. We know that Ishmael is not. That becomes clear in chapter 17. Abram even prays for Ishmael. I'm going to show you that, that he prays for his conversion, and God says no. That's clear. Ishmael is not the seed. They don't know that. By the end of this chapter, they probably still think he's the seed. You know, the fact that he's going to be a wild man, well, okay, well, that's how he's going to accomplish salvation. They don't know that. Abram thinks it is until later. They think that this, she comes back and, and Ishmael's the seed. But the interesting thing is that God appears to Hagar twice. How many people in the Bible does God appear to twice? How about you could count it on two hands? That God gives a theophany to twice. To Hagar, a lowly Egyptian slave girl who's rebelling against her mistress and puffed up in pride. God appears to this girl twice. She had been an idol worshiper, and that's what she would have died if they wouldn't have, in the providence of God, she had been given to Abram as a gift by Pharaoh when Abram was walking in sin. But remember, so would Abram and Sarai. If God wouldn't have called Abram out of the land where he was, where Joshua says... Abram's father, Terah, and his house worshipped other gods across the river. Abram and Sarai would have died idol worshippers too, and so would we have. Nobody's better than Hagar. And that's true for Ishmael as well. Whatever he has is by the grace of God, and God does promise him certain graces. Right? Verse 12. He shall be a wild man, literally a wild donkey of a man. The onager is the wild donkey in Africa and Asia and the Middle East. And it is famous, or maybe I should say infamous, for just being unruly, untamable, doing whatever it wants. And it's describing the life. This was more of a proverb. This isn't just God saying this, but people would have said this. You know, he's like a wild donkey. He's uncontrollable. He's unpredictable. He does whatever he wants. He's a law to himself. And God's promising him that he'll have success in this lifestyle. His hand will be against every man. Every man's against him. But he will dwell in literally before the faces of his brethren. This is not a guy who's running off and hiding, you know, like the uh, hole-in-the-wall gang hiding out. Ishmael is living in everyone's presence. And he's saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. 
and nobody's going to stop me. And that's the way he lives his life until he dies. Ishmael's like the Hollywood hero of all the action films, right? He does what he wants. He makes his own rules. I mean, this is the man we're told to be. This rugged individualist. Nobody tells Ishmael what to do and nobody did until he died. He really did it my way. He's the kind of guy I think that we are told to look up to. This wild donkey of a man. And he's got this sin, this sin of just, again, rebelling and being corrupt and living in a way in which he is conflicting with everyone around him constantly. I mean, we see this even today, right, in the Middle East. I was reading, and this is not by any means a conservative website, but on the ArabCenterDC.org. So this is the Arab Center for Washington, D.C. I mean, this is very, very pro-Arab, very liberal. And it has a paper on their website, and it's called Conflict in the Arab World and the Way Forward. The paper says this. For decades, interstate and intrastate conflicts have been enduring and poignant characteristic of life in the Middle East and North Africa. Active and dormant wars and disputes dot the stretch of the Arab region from the Western Sahara on the Atlantic to the plains of Syria and Iraq in the east to the far reaches of Yemen's Bab al-Mandab on the coast of the Horn of Africa. Millions of combatants, innocent lives lost, massive tracts of land, entire countries destroyed. Still the article. The Arab world's wars and disputes have become more intense since the Second World War and the dramatic liberation from colonial rule. Once they were no longer under the Western powers, they were free and they started to war with one another. The wars arguably became more complicated and now involve active as well as passive participants, domestic and foreign Political scientists, security experts, military and strategic thinkers, policymakers, and others, listen to this, have composed various typologies of these wars. In other words, all these experts had to come up with a new language to describe all the different ways in which these countries are at war with one another. And here's some of the war, the language. Civil, interstate, intrastate, extrastate, low intensity, asymmetrical, insurgent, counter-terrorist, separatist, ethnic, sectarian, and many others. They can't come up with enough names because of this warlikeness that seems to still be in the descendants of Ishmael. Now, before we get too puffed up in pride, guess what? Every ethnicity and every race and every family has their habitual sins. What I like to see in this text is a proof that the Bible is true because we see that particular sin in that particular people. But all of the nations and all of the countries and all of the families and every one of us as individuals have those sins that we're prone to. And if we deny that, we're denying that we've fallen in God. And so what I want us to see is that even though God sees this and knows this. And by the way, God doesn't make Ishmael this way. God's making him bad. This is who Ishmael wants to be. God has declared it. God has ordained it. God has ordered it. But God is never the author of any sin. And God in his ordaining has known and even he's talking about what this guy's going to do. And what all of them, you know, different ones and all the, just think of it, all the violent people, all the wicked people, all of the sins of all the people of all of the world, God knows. 
And God doesn't stop it. Right? And I get that question a lot too. Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's an easy question. There are no good people. As Bob Parker used to love to say, and we mentioned this yesterday, how are you doing, Bob, better than I deserve, right? When he was on his deathbed, one of the last days of his life, when I saw him, Bob, how are you doing? In pain, better than I deserve. And he meant it because he understood what it means to be a sinner before a holy God. I don't care how bad your life is, how many horrible things have happened to you, how much better you deserve and you think you do, if God were to give you what you deserve right now, it would be beyond the imagining of horror because it's hell. That's what we deserve. So no matter how much pain, no matter how much wrongdoing, no matter how much things have happened, if you are alive in this world, you are doing better than you deserve. And we've got to remember that. And that's why when we see injustice happening in the world, we ought not to question God. We ought not to think, oh, where is God? By the way, I, I, was man I managed to finish The Brothers Karamazov this year, finally. I, I could not read that book. I tried in all those Russian names. I couldn't remember who was who. I gave up. Well, I finally went back and read it. And what's interesting is in that book, there's a chapter called The Grand Inquisitor. And one of the brothers, who's an atheist, is trying to corrupt and ruin the other brother's faith. And so he attacks his faith with this story that he makes up about the Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition. But you didn't think I was going to mention that in this sermon, huh? <laughs> Nobody ever expects that. But in the Spanish Inquisition, the Grand Inquisitor is conducting his business and Jesus comes back and he begins healing and doing miracles like he did when he was here the first time. And the Grand Inquisitor has him arrested and brought to him. And he begins to interrogate Jesus and he knows who he is. And he begins to interrogate him, first of all, on how uh, wrong Christ is and how wrong God is and in particular for suffering. And in particular for children suffering. And he talks about how many millions of children have to suffer in this world. All because you're holy. All because you're righteous. How does that justify it? And he's grilling Christ one after another. And Christ is just standing there. And he never takes his eyes off of him. And he never responds. And he takes the three temptations of Jesus. Where Jesus was going to make stones into bread. And Jesus refused to do that. And he said, you've refused to do that. But we do that now. We in the corrupt organized church. We provide people for what they need. So they don't have to go out and earn their living. You want people to do that. And that's hard. We make it easy for them. And they want that. And then he takes the second temptation of Christ. When Christ was going to throw himself down from the temple. And he says to him. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't display your miraculous works publicly so that everyone would know it was you and believe in you. But we give the people the miracles and we do them repeatedly before them and they can't wait to come and worship us and give up their free will because they don't want it. And then he says, thirdly, when Jesus refused to bow down and worship, he said, we give them worship. We give them all sorts of objects to worship, saints and all sorts of other things that they can bow down and worship. And that's what they want because man wants to worship idols. And so we've given man everything that he wants. And what do you give him? The promise of salvation someday and in the midst of suffering. 
And the interrogator, the grand inquisitor, becomes more and more enraged because Jesus won't answer him. And finally, he demands an answer, and Jesus walks up to him and hugs him. And he was going to kill Jesus. And at this point, he turns his back, and he says, set him free. And he leaves in a rage. Beloved, if you don't understand mercy and you don't understand grace, you're never going to get the problem of suffering. You're never going to get, if you don't believe you're a sinner and that you deserve worse than you're getting, you'll never understand it. If God were to bring justice, we would all be destroyed. So he is merciful. He's long-suffering. He lets the Esau's, the Ishmael's, the Canaan's, the Cain's live. And yes, they kill the Abel's. And there's suffering in this world. But he promises to make it right. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And life by faith is believing that. I won't take vengeance because I believe God will make it right. Yes, I will fight for justice in this world as much as I can. But I will trust in God when I can't. And that's the reason why there's suffering in this world because God is merciful and he lets sinners live and if sinners live, they're going to hurt people. But the, 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 the alternative is justice. No more suffering, unjustly. Everybody in hell burning forever and that's justice. And so it's when we get too puffed up in pride, when we think we deserve something more, that we question suffering and God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Because if we really understood who we are, we wouldn't say to God, why are you letting those bad people live? We'd be saying, why are you letting me live? Because I should die. Because of what I've done. Because of what I've done. It's only a proud person who looks at the world and sees suffering and blames God. A person who really is honest says, why am I still alive that I can even see suffering? Because I should have died. I should be put to death. And this is the fact that everyone in this world receives the grace of God. It's the common grace of God. It's the goodness of God. We experience good things. Ishmael experienced many good things. God's promising him all sorts of uh, goodness. We'll get even more of this in chapter 21 when Hagar is visited by the angel again. But I just want you to notice God's grace is in this world to the wicked. And that enables that wicked people do wicked things, but God will make it right one day. Fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice all people live by the goodness of God. All people live by the goodness of God. So how does Hagar respond to these amazing promises? She is broken by God's goodness to her. If she was not a converted person before, I think she is in this text. Verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Hagar, this proud, rebellious, insubordinate, stubborn girl is now grateful, is now humble, is now surprised at how much grace that she has. Before she was demanding that she was, didn't have enough. Now she can't believe. Have I too seen God? I mean, the name that she gives to God here exalts God's greatness and it, 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 it lowers herself. Even I. That he would see even me. She's lowering herself. She's humbling herself. She's exalting God. And by the way, if you don't think God is good to those who humble, 
themselves before him. Did you know that in all the Bible, there is one person who gives God a name? Right here. No one else ever does this. Abram calls the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. Jacob calls the name of the place Peniel. Gideon calls the name of the altar. No one ever presumes to call God a name. Hagar, God permits Hagar to give God a name. Etah El Roy. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. The God who sees even lowly me. Hagar knows that she is a lowly servant and now she is actually an honorable person because she is admitting her lowliness that is God is the one who exalts her. And in the end, beloved, it's, it's only the people who are too proud to admit that that are ever lost. No one is ever lost except those who will not humble themselves before God and just say, God, you're right. I'm a sinner. I trust in you. I mean, that's how God makes it. That's what salvation is. Just admit the truth that you're a proud, rebellious sinner that God should destroy and that all of the problems in your life stem from your own sins or someone else's and that God has never done you wrong. Because I guarantee you, every unbeliever I've ever met at some level is blaming God. It's his fault ultimately. Oh, you see it on the golf course a lot, don't you, Jim? Who do, they, who do they blaspheme when they slice it into the woods? It's not tailor-made. It's Jesus. It's his fault. My golf swings off. I mean, even simple things like that. Finally, I want to just close with this. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son. She didn't know that. She knew she was pregnant. You shall call his name Ishmael. Shema is to hear because the Lord has heard your afflictions. God heard the largely self-inflicted suffering of this Egyptian maid girl because she humbled herself before. Beloved, if you just cry out to God, I don't care how long you've been straying, how wicked you've been doing things, if you would just cry out to God, he even right now, he sees, just think of it, Jehovah sees. He sees even you, wherever you are. He knows and he actually hears what your affliction is to you. And beloved, if we would just cry out to him, if we would just humble ourselves before the God who sees, yes, and cares for even me, he too will find you. He too will be your Elroy, the God who sees me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you rescued this, this nobody, this slave girl, You rescued her. You gave her promises. And Lord, most of all, you caused her to humble herself before you and to exalt you. And that's something only believers do, Father. And so, Father, we pray that if you can find and save someone like this, that you would would cause everyone in this congregation to know if they would just humble themselves before you, you would restore them. You would save them. You would cause them to know your joy again, even in the midst of being a slave as Hagar continued to be. And yet she knew your joy and she had your promise and that was enough for her. Let it be enough for us, God. 
I pray especially for any who are really struggling right now with some hardship. Let them know that by believing in you and just humbling themselves before you and just doing what you have put before them on a day-by-day basis, they can know your peace and joy and know that you care for them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.